The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Christ. Our reading, our gospel reading this morning is indeed from St. Luke. It is chapter 6, verses 17 through 26, and it can be found on page 1600 in your pew Bible. Luke records, He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of the Man, Son of Man. Jesus in that day, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you. When everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Will you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the name of Jesus. My parents encouraged me to begin reading the Bible shortly after I began learning how to read. My mom gave me the Children's Living Bible. It was a little tiny Bible, right? And it had lots of pictures in it, paintings, and not paintings, but illustrations. And um, I was pretty thrilled with it. In fact, I thought it was not far removed from the Dead Sea Scrolls. In that, I didn't even know what the Dead Sea Scrolls were, but it was pretty important, and it was a holy book, and everything in it had to be right. I just, as a child, right? It's the Bible, so it's got to be true, and the pictures too. And at that time, you know, I thought that the books of the Bible were written in the order that they appear in the Bible. It makes sense, you know, Genesis through that one in the end, Revelation. And 
I also thought that the illustrations were authentic, you know. They were exciting. They were kind of my favorite part of the whole book. And I had that Bible until I um, started back into a men's ministry and a men's Bible study about 22 years ago. And it dawned on me, I better update my Bible. And I did. But the thing that I found out as I have matured, I gave up childish ways and childish thinking. And I found out that, well, each book of the Bible was written by itself. And, and that there are many ways that the Bible and the books of can be arranged. Um, we have one that is uh, the canonical, canonical uh, Bible, and it's arranged uh, by uh, uh, a group that came together, and, and, and they, they put down uh, uh, a standard by which uh, the books would be uh, put in, especially in the the gospel readings, and, and so I didn't have any real idea about our church history and how we got the Bible to be the way that it is. And one of the things, you know, that even, you know, I'm learning all the time on this. Yesterday in our men's group, um, we read Psalm 90, and it was asked if this is the only psalm of, that Moses wrote, and I didn't know, I knew that there were others, I didn't know how many, but you know, um, God knows everything, and Google is pretty close. Um, and there's uh, at least 11 uh, psalms that are attributed to Moses. But these are kind of the things that you learn as you go along, and that, you know, if you're five or six, you're like, who's Moses? You know, maybe not. But, I mean, these are the things as, as we go along. Now, here's another little um, interesting factoid that... Um, theologians, uh, scholars have come together to agree that um, the account of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians that we read about today may be the first written proclamation of the resurrection. And that's kind of strange to think that Paul's epistle to the church in Corinth was actually written down before the Gospels. But that's what those that study that sort of thing uh, have come up together as a consensus. So today's epistle was written to a church that had many struggles. And that city that of Corinth was a really strategic geographical spot. It is on a uh, narrow isthmus that connects the two parts of Greece. And the citizens of Corinth along the sister city of Centuria had worked out a way to lift ships up out of the sea and then carry them across the isthmus. And then place them back into the sea on the other side. And this turned out to be a huge saving of time for the ships. And consequently, Corinth became very wealthy. And the only thing is this, is that Corinth also became very immoral. 
after all, what are sailors supposed to do while their ship is making it across land, across the isthmus? And so Corinth soon became a center of both moral and immoral forms of entertainment for the sailors that were waiting for the ships to be relocated. So in fact, Corinth became a verb. To Corinthianize came to mean to live a pagan or immoral life similar to the citizens of Corinth. Now in spite of all of this, the Holy Spirit worked through the Apostle Paul to establish a Christian congregation in Corinth. And Paul spent a great deal of time in Corinth helping them with all of the struggles that a young church would have in the middle of such a corrupt, pagan, and immoral culture. And we know for fact that the members of the congregation in Corinth also sent several delegations to Paul even after he left the city. They still had struggles, and they still looked to Paul to provide them with the guidance that he had from the Holy Spirit. And as a result, Paul sent at least four letters to the church in Corinth, and two of these letters survived and became what we know as First and Second Corinthians in our New Testament. And today's epistle reading comes near the end of the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. He has dealt with several of the dividing issues in the congregations, and at various points in his letter, he has encouraged, he has scolded, he has warned, and he has guided. And now, as he ends the letter, he gets back to the basics. And this is the part I need you to pay attention to from now on. I promise this isn't a long sermon today on Super Bowl Sunday. To the basics, Paul reminds them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, and that is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the Scriptures. And Paul reminded the Christians in Corinth that the most important teaching is that Christ died for our sins and that he rose on the third day. Now today there are many false scholars that insist that Christ's resurrection was a hoax. They insist that either the disciples or the early church fabricated a resurrection in order to jumpstart this new religion called Christianity. And the truth is, and it's sad, There are millions who buy into this false scholarship. Paul's words to the Corinthians not only tell us that Christ has risen, but they also challenge those who say he has not. 
for those who deny the resurrection. The truth is, you see that Paul followed his proclamation of the resurrection with a list of witnesses. Did you know that? He followed this proclamation with a list of witnesses who saw Jesus alive after he died on the cross. And when Paul states that these people saw Jesus, he doesn't mean that they saw a glimpse of him out of the corner of their eye. No. He is talking about the kind of witness who says he, well, (laughs) he's talking about the kind of witness that you bring up on a court and it would be a slam dunk. He's not talking about some guy that says, you know, I was out in the woods and I saw Elvis and Bigfoot together. These were credible witnesses. He's talking about witnesses who had conversations with Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who touched Jesus. He is talking about first class, reliable, credible witnesses. Again, the kind of witness that you can put on a stand at any trial. And Paul reminded the Christians in Corinth that they could talk to Cephas, Peter. They could or any of the other 12 apostles. And then there is another group of 500 who saw Jesus. How many people do you really need to witness and then to believe that it actually happened? 500 beyond the apostles. Okay, so... There are people out there that study mythology and they say that you have to get far, far away from someone or something in order to start a myth about it. It's kind of how lies work, but we'll go forward. You have to be far enough away so that no one can say, hey, you know what, I was there. And that's not how it happened at all. Or somebody else would say, you know what, my grandma, um, she told me all about it. She was there, and that's not how she said that it happened. You need a great distance in time or a great distance in space so that no one can check out your facts. Further, Christianity does the exact opposite. Christianity starts in Jerusalem, where anyone can take a few hours and check out the tomb, where any decent investigator can find witnesses to the people and the events walking on the street. And if you are going to start up a fake religion that depended on a fake miracle, you would not start it up in the very city where this fake miracle was supposed to happen. You do not start it up less than a generation after the miracle was supposed to happen. You just can't do that with a fake. You can only do it with the truth. And in this case, the truth is that the resurrection, that the resurrection is real. 
And the witnesses of the resurrection are not just credible witnesses because their accounts of the resurrection line up and make sense. No, there's more. They are also credible witnesses because they were willing to die rather than change their story. And no sane person would die for a story that he knew was false. And the fact that hundreds of martyrs gave up their lives shows us that the resurrection is the truth. Now what does it mean that the resurrection is the truth? Well, it means that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, it is finished, then it really is finished. That he has taken all of our sins away from us and made us righteous before God. And it means that every promise that he ever made is true. It means that those who believe in him for the forgiveness of sins will live forever in the joy of his promise. So what does it mean that the resurrection is truth? It means that the loved ones that we have buried in death will not remain that way forever. It means that when we buried them, that we experienced a different kind of grief. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our grief is the grief of those who will be apart for a long time, but not forever. The resurrection means that the day will come when we will see our loved ones again. The resurrection means that when a believer dies, that the Lord takes him out of this valley of sorrows to himself in heaven. It means that he leaves behind all sin and sorrow, all pain and all sickness, all that make life in this world so hard and frustrating is left behind. It means that he now waits in the presence of the Lord, his Savior, Jesus Christ, absent the body, face to face with Jesus Christ. The resurrection means that the day will come when Jesus will raise all the dead and will give eternal life to all believers in Christ. It means that the day will come when there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. It means that all those who wait with the Lord in heaven and all those who are still alive on earth will be changed. We shall all live in our bodies, but these bodies will be immortal, heavenly, perfect bodies. 
They shall be our bodies, but all of the corruption of the sin will be gone. This flesh is what we're battling against now. This flesh will perish, but a new body will be given to us, a perfect body. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. In the name of Jesus, amen.